Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. It is great to be with you here today. Uh, my name is Tom Van Antwerp, and I'm the campus pastor of our Wilmington campus. Great to be back here in Lexington. A greetings to those of you who are in Wilmington and East Lexington and Foxborough and all the places where people listen and uh, take in this message. We're glad that you are with us today. It is so good to be here today. Um, you know, as I was a kid, all throughout my growing up years, uh, I had this experience these experiences of summer camp that became very formative and shaping for me personally. By the time I got to college, I thought for sure... ...in a camping ministry. Loved everything about camp. I mean, the experiences, the camaraderie with the staff... Uh, I loved seeing kids come in at the beginning of a couple of weeks of camp and learning about themselves and growing as they made their way. Uh, I love the experiences, the times that I had with God out in the great outdoors. I gr grew in love with God's creation through summer camp. And then, of course, the smell of the summer air and uh, even, even the smell of the smoke on my clothes that never left all week long, all summer long. I took it home with me and usually kept one shirt out that I didn't wash that I could just remind myself of the memories. But one of my favorite things at camp was, uh, was the high ropes course. It was the, this towering 30-foot course up in these towering trees where, where young people would stand on a, on a postage-sized platform all the way up at knees knocking and their hearts pounding, looking across this high traverse, you know, frightful, not wanting to cross, but, but, but anxious because they were desperate to cross. And it always, no matter... Uh, whatever happened, without a doubt, the one thing that got people who were fearful across that traverse every single time was a group of their peers who were standing down below on the solid terra firma, uh, looking up at them and cheering, you can do it. Come on, you can, do, you can do it. Take a step, take a step. And then, of course, those feet would step one at a time across that high traverse. Encouragement has a great effect. And those kids at the bottom were pouring courage into those frightening, frightened kids up top. Now, we've all had moments in life like this, haven't we? That's what's beautiful about the ropes course is it teaches us about ourselves and life. We all have moments where it feels like we have a huge obstacle ahead of us, a great tra traverse that we have to cross that we're afraid to. We all have times when we're facing a daunting challenge, when we need or would love a team of encouragers to come around and clap and cheer for you. Wouldn't life like that be great? Encouragement can give us what we need when we're making our way through difficult times. Encouragement does that. Now, during this season of Lent, we are making our way through the minor prophets, and, uh, and if you haven't discovered yet, the prophets, prophets uh, weren't known for their bolstering, encouraging words, were they? As a matter of fact, uh, we talked about the role of the prophet. The prophet's job was, was typically to tear things down and then to ride off into the sunset. Uh, like speak words of pronounce, pronouncing impending judgment or, or pointing out people's sin calling people to repentance. 
Well, today we come to a different kind of prophet. Prophet, prophet named Zechariah. And in Zechariah's message, we discover he, he strikes a very different kind of tone. As a matter of fact, Zechariah has come to be known as the prophet of hope and encouragement. Uh, now, don't get used to it because Malachi is next week, but at least we have one week hiatus from the heaviness of what we've been experiencing. Now, of course, throughout our series, we've been talk, taking a hard look at the things in our world that are broken. Um, things like faithlessness and corruption, injustice and materialism. And, and they stand to us like these great obstacles that, that we face day in and day out, not just in the world out there, but in the world in here. Zechariah stands as one who, who begins to encourage us to overcome these obstacles, to make our way through. And he offers the people of Israel this great encouragement. And as he does, he bolsters their faith and he strengthens our faith as well. So let's jump right into the first verses of the book of Zechariah and hear what he has to say. Zechariah 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. Now just setting the scene here, uh, Zechariah was not only a prophet, but he actually came out of a, a, a lineage of priests. Now, this may account for some of the ways that he encourages, because we remember that priests, shepherds, uh, were people who built people up. And it appears that he wasn't just a mouthpiece of judgment, but he was a shepherd as well. Um, and he came from a lineage of those. And he was called to speak at a very critical point in time for the people of Israel. And on the one hand, the people, the, the, the people that he was speaking to had a, had a reason for great optimism. For 70 years, the people of Judah had been in exile in Babylon. And they'd been living under, under, in a foreign land under foreign control um, by a king who was attempting to, by his tactics, erase all of their heritage and history by forcing them to assimilate to the godless and pagan culture that they were living in. But now here by uh, 539 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, came to power and he had a change in his strategy. Uh, his strategy was to begin to, to send conquered peoples back to their homelands to reinvigorate parts of, uh, of the empire that had, uh, that had been languishing. And so the people of Judah, the people of Israel and the southern tribes were making their way back to Jerusalem. And so by the time of Zechariah's ministry, there were, were 50,000 Jews living in and around the city of Jerusalem. So there was reason for great hopefulness at this moment. But at the same time, when they returned, they found themselves facing some very significant challenges. Jerusalem was no longer the city that they and their forefathers had remembered. Jerusalem was in terrible disrepair. The, the city walls had all been torn down. The gates had been, had been set fire to and were, were, were sitting in, in ashes, in a heap of ashes. The once magnificent temple that, that stood at the center of the city representing God's presence there was utterly destroyed. And so the land was devastated and every time an effort was made by these returning uh, pilgrims, 
every time they started to do a rebuilding work of the city, to restore the temple, it was met by, by their neighbors with great opposition. And so they would set roadblock after roadblock and, uh, and stop the work altogether. By the time Zechariah began to preach, some 17 years had passed since, since the people had laid the first foundation of the temple. But it had been 17 years since any significant work had been done. And the people were giving up. Haggai last week, that prophet spoke into this same time period. And we know that the people had sort of retired and retreated to their own, uh, giving attention to their own circumstances. The people were incredibly discouraged. Now, we've all had seasons of discouragement, haven't we? You've experienced discouragement. Maybe you found discouragement uh, at your, in your workplace. Maybe you got passed over for a job that you had been hoping for, and you're finding yourself in sort of a wasting time mode, maybe feeling a bit like you've made your way to a dead-end job. We get discouraged when when other people fail us, right, in relationship, when we feel like we're putting forward all our best effort, but it doesn't feel like we're getting anything in return. And we get discouraged. We get discouraged when we look around and see the world and it's not functioning the way that we know that it should be, the, the way that we long for it to. When systems seem stacked against us or people that we care about, or rigged for the benefit of those in power. We feel like nothing is going to change. We get discouraged when we see in ourselves the same old patterns of relating and of acting, same old unhealthy triggers and tendencies that lead us to make poor choices, things that we know aren't good for us or for anyone around us. And so when we experience these things over and over and over again, it can lead us to a sense of great discouragement, even helplessness. And so when we get discouraged in our discouragement, we find ourselves susceptible, susceptible primarily to one of three unhealthy responses. We either give up, we give over, or we give in. We give up, meaning that we just, we stop. We let go of our trying. We, we stop striving for making any reasonable difference because after all, it's not helping anyway, so we might as well just give up. Secondly, discouragement leads to us giving over. Giving over to someone else, the responsibilities that really are ours, where we just, we abdicate our role. We let somebody else make the call. We step back and give over the things that we know really are our responsibility. And so we just go with the flow, we blow with the cultural winds or the voices that speak loudest. And then finally, discouragement leads us to, to giving in. Giving up, uh, giving up, giving over, giving in. Giving in is the shift into default mode. Uh, since you can't make a positive difference, you allow yourself to give in to all the negative tendencies that, that you have inside. If your progress isn't coming, you know, you might as well simply pursue your own pleasure. Buy yourself happiness. Take whatever joy in life you can get. You find yourself overeating and overspending, binge watching, self-medicating, pleasure seeking. We give in to our natural tendencies. And where does all of this, when, when it all sort of foments up, what does it lead to? 
it leads to an overriding sense of indifference. Indifference. Because if you feel that all of your efforts are not making a difference, you're tempted to become indifferent, right? Indifferent to the the things that are important to you. Indifference to the, indifferent to the needs of people around you who are, who are desperate for help. Indifference, indifferent to the things that are most important and matter most to God. I wonder if you found yourself in your discouragement becoming indifferent. You know, I can feel it in my own spirit as we've been talking about the brokenness of this world and laying out all its complexities and problems. Um, it does lead me at times to feeling like Can one person really make a difference? Uh, Can a church really make a difference? And as the church's role in society seems to be diminishing, as people stop listening to to the voices of, of faith leaders, and oftentimes at our own hand is the problem, by the way, I find myself feeling discouraged with all these societal pressures looming so large, maybe I should just draw a circle around my own interests and leave it at that. I mean, I've got five kids in school, one in college, a couple in first grade. Uh, I've got a mortgage to pay off and, and a job to do. Listen, I'm a pastor, but I understand that these are feelings that we all feel from time to time, just giving up, giving over, giving in, becoming indifferent and taking care of our own. And these aren't new feelings because they were the same feelings that the people of Israel were experiencing in Jerusalem. All of this was happening with them. They'd given up their work of rebuilding the city and the temple. They'd given over their fate to the circumstances around them. And they'd given in to their sinful tendencies, focusing on their own agendas, their own personal pleasures. So they were indifferent to the things of God and the things he wanted to do through them. And so it's into this moment that the prophet Zechariah steps and it's into this moment that he begins to speak. And what he does as he speaks is he begins to proclaim a bold vision. Because vision, it turns out, is the antidote to discouragement. We all know that without vision, people start to languish. Without vision, people get discouraged. Without vision, things stop moving forward. But when vision is brought into the mix, when when Zechariah comes and paints this preferable future for people, he then invites them to step into it. Vision lifts people's countenance. It, It calls people to step up and step in. And God actually gives Zechariah a series of visions throughout this book, and Zechariah brings those to the people. And we, we don't have time to get into all of them, but as we bring them to their essence, I would suggest that there are two things that, that stand out, that shine through all of the visions that, that Zechariah brings to, to the people of God and to us. Two primary pictures. The first vision is a picture of God's mission for his people, reminding them of that. And the second is a picture of God's heart for every single person. So I want to take the first one first, the vision that Zechariah brings of God's vision, uh, mission for his, his people. 
It begins with a vision for the people of Israel of, of a restored Jerusalem. He begins to talk about it and paint pictures of it with his words, uh, talking about it being a, a thriving place of vitality once again. Chapter one, verse 16. Zechariah says, therefore, this is what the Lord said. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. My towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. We'll pick it up again. Chapter eight, another vision. He says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem would be called the faithful city. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets in Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Now imagine what it sounded like to the people of, of Judah who had returned, looking out over this husk of a burnt out city. And having these words wash over them, a, a, a picture of what God was going to do in Jerusalem, bringing life back to this place. I love the imagery of, of the old man and woman sitting in the street with their canes, uh, making it clear that no, they really had lived to a ripe old age. They could do that because of the security and safety. The, the picture of children playing in the streets where they don't have to worry about trouble or conflict where, where kids can be kids, where children could live out their life uh, as a child. Strong community, sustainable economy, a flourishing, a flourishing Jerusalem. And it'd be great for Israel once again. It'd be great for us if that was what God did. But then God, uh, God and Zechariah goes on to make it clear that God's plan here is about more than just Israel and just Jerusalem. God reminded them that, that he wasn't interested in their future alone. God's heart was a heart for all nations. Listen to what he says. Chapter eight again. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Peoples from all nations and cities around the world will travel to Jerusalem. The people of one city will say to the people of another, come, let us, uh, come with us to Jerusalem and ask the Lord to bless us. Let's, let's us worship the Lord. I'm determined to go. Many people and powerful nations will come to seek the Lord and to ask for his blessing. Men from different nations and languages of the world will clutch at the sleeve of a Jew and they will say, please let us walk with you for we have heard that God is with you. Now, Zechariah is speaking into a, a time when, when tribal groups we're living primarily for self-preservation, for self-protection. As a matter of fact, this is very much the case uh, during this season for Israel. God is making it clear, though, to Israel and reminding them that God is not, has never intended to bless Israel for Israel's sake alone. But then from the very start, they would be a conduit through which God would pour blessing onto the entire world, to all nations, people of all, uh, all backgrounds. And so God's global mission would be accomplished, yes, through Israel, but not just for Israel. And of course, we know that so many of us are recipients of, of that grand work of God. I mean, I would imagine that in this room and in our campuses, uh, most of us are, are not Jewish natives, but come from someplace else. But God has used the people of Israel to pour out his blessing 
that they might be a blessing to the world. And of course, the church becomes the extension of that work. Zechariah didn't know the end of the story, but Christ would come and lead people to himself and he would pour out his blessing on the nations. And so for us, what does this mean? You know, it's easy for the church to get caught up in this tribal identity idea as well, to think that God is blessing us just for us, to fail to be reminded that God is calling us to be, to be doing good in the world and to bless those around us. He wants to use us as a conduit for God's work. You know, I remember in the early days when we started to launch our campus in Wilmington, um, when we gathered together a number of folks who we knew were going to come and, and launch that thing with us. I remember as we gathered, God giving us a vision for a, a church. And he didn't give us a vision of children playing in the streets. Uh, you know, 93 is pretty close to uh, the Wilmington campus, just a couple dozen feet away. Um, but he gave us a vision of this place that was situated right on 93 and 128, right, right on the corner there. And we did have visions of children, young people running around in the lobby over there, uh, scampering over toes and whatnot. We did have a vision uh, of, of, of high school students bumping around back in our youth space area, uh, sitting with mentors and adults who cared for them and wanted to help them through the challenging stages of adolescence and into their adulthood. We did have visions of of, of men and women getting together and sitting and talking about the truths and, of the scripture and applying them to their lives and, and doing good in the world. But what got me most excited and what got the church most excited wasn't the idea of a group of Christians from Lexington making their way over to Wilmington and having a great experience together. What really emboldened our vision was the possibility that people from all around, from the Wilmington and Reading and the surrounding towns might, might drive by and, and see the sign on the highway and, and think about the place of God in their life. That they might overhear conversations between friends, moms at the gym, talking about their church and asking questions. That the people that we work with and our neighbors might hear us talk about how God meets us in our times of trouble or pain or heartache. We, we got, got excited about the kind of community that we might be that would show to the world around us, to the communities around us, that God's heart for justice or his love for, for young kids who, who, who didn't have families or compassion for refugees or empathy for people who are lonely, that God might use us, not just for us, but for the blessing and the benefit of broader purposes in the world around us. Do you see how vision pours courage into the equation. You know, I was at a playground just the other day. It's been a while since we've started in Wilmington and it's easy for vision to get uh, lost, for it to leak a bit. And I was at the playground in Wilmington uh, taking my, uh, my twin girls to the park. And on my way in, it was between running an errand and picking up another kid from school. On my way in, I said to God, I said, God, if you have anybody that you'd like me to connect with, uh, I'm just open. I just want you to know. Uh, I'm here. <laughs> and, uh, and so I walked in, and uh, I don't know if you understand what it's like for a dad, a man, to be at a playground full of kids and mostly moms. Um, but we get a little uncomfortable and awkward. And what we do, 
I'll just let you in on a little secret is we look for another guy in, in, you know, in the fence. Um, and we kind of gravitate a little bit. And uh, if we can bump up against and sort of uh, um, uh, make sure everybody knows we're on the up and up here, you know, having a conversation with a friend. And so there was a guy there. And uh, sure enough, we got to talking just for a very short time. And his daughter was there. My daughters were there as well. Um, and in a very brief period of time, in just five to seven minutes, he asked, we started to ask some questions. He asked me what I did. I said, I'm a pastor down the road at Grace Chapel in Wilmington. Oh, he knew the Fiorenza family that owned the property and ran the business uh, that we bought, uh, who we bought from. And, uh, and so we just started talking. And then we started talking. He said, you know, ask me some questions about the church. And we started talking about, about our faith. He'd been away from the church probably for decades, but, uh, but we had this shared sense that, that there was more to life than simply what we could see, what we could taste, what we could touch, and that there was a God behind it, a creator who, who, who maybe even loves us and cares about us. Uh, and he began to just acknowledge, we both acknowledged a longing to have a spiritual connection with God in a real and personal way. And, and as we just talked very briefly, um, he said, uh, could, could I come to your church? <laughs> and I said, yes. Uh, he said, well, when, when are the services? I told him when the services were, and he said, well, can I bring my daughter? I said, yeah, you can bring your daughter. Can I bring my niece? <laughs> yeah, you can bring your niece. You know, and in that moment, God, in such a simple way, renewed my vision for the mission, for his mission in this world and my part in it. And sometimes it's very simple steps that we need to take. And I just long to see God leverage our congregation, our congregations, the congregation that you're a part of to bring the good news of the gospel of Christ to this world that can be, have such a an powerful leavening effect into the communities, into our workplaces, into our families, that God might continue to transform the world for his good purposes and for the good of others. And so regardless of your heritage, regardless of your background, what country you're from, how much money you have, how much education you have, what you look like, regardless of any of that, God is saying through his church, I am for you, I am for you. And the goodness I have for this world is not for a subset of people. It's not just for Jerusalem. It's not just for the church. It's for the entire world. So I'm excited. We're starting to make plans for an expansion in Wilmington in 2019. And, and as, as those plans come into place, we're rededicating and recommitting ourselves that we are not building these walls for ourselves. We are not building this space for ourselves to be more comfortable or at home in that space. Our hope is that it gives us more room to bring more people into a community that is being transformed by the power of God. And to be honest, we have work to do and no matter what campus you attend or you're a part of, God has purposes for you to fulfill in your church as well and through your church and into the world. And he's calling you to be a part of it. So through Zechariah, God gives his people a vision for the mission that he has for them. And then secondly, the second thing he gives is he gives them a vision of his heart for each and every person. Now, there are a lot of places in the book of Zechariah where we could go to find this truth. Um, but maybe none more clearly demonstrated than in Zechariah chapter three. 
Zechariah 3 says this, the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand making accusations against Joshua. Now, Joshua was the high priest at the time of the people who Zechariah was speaking to. And the scene that he was painting was, was a courtroom scene with God on his holy throne, right? And, and there was Joshua, the high priest, standing trial. And the prosecutor was Satan. Now, the name for Satan in the Hebrew literally means the accuser. And he was doing just that. He was making accusations against Joshua. You know, Satan loves to make accusations against you and against me. Then the Lord turns to Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin. I'll put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. So again, the scene is that Joshua is standing before, before God. And Satan is standing there accusing him, saying, look at him. God, look at this man. He is filthy. He's covered in soot. He's covered in grime and ashes. He's like a burning stick that's been snatched out of the fire. God, he's unworthy to stand before you. Accusation after accusation. I wonder if you've ever felt this way, by the way. You felt like standing before God. You felt unworthy. You felt covered in soot. And you hear the voice of the accuser reminding you time and time again of all the ways that your life has gone wrong, of all the decisions in your past that you've made, of all the hurt and all the junk. And you hear him say, do you have any idea how unworthy you are? Sometimes Satan comes and does that. And he's standing there accusing Joshua. And I love God's response. God turns to Satan and he says, I rebuke you. Enough out of you. Shut your mouth is what he says. I can't go any further because my daughters are on the other side of that camera watching me on a screen. We don't say those words. Um, But God says, I I know he's filthy. Why do you think I snatched him out of the muck and the mire to begin with? I'm aware that he's a burning stick plucked out of the fire. Who do you think plucked him out? He may be filthy, but I'm gonna make him something beautiful. So what does God do? You see, while Satan loves to accuse us, God loves to choose us. Despite our sin, despite our past, despite our shame. And he reaches in and he takes us out and he makes us his. When we were unworthy, when we were guilty before God, God says, I'm picking you. I'm choosing you. And it turns out that Joshua in this whole process, you know what he had to say for himself? He didn't have to say a word because God was speaking on his behalf. 
Then God turns to Joshua and he says, if you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my commandments, I'll give you a place of standing among those standing here, meaning I'll give you unfettered access to myself, Joshua, because what he did was he took off, he bid the angel to take off the filthy robes and to clean him again with clean garments that were fresh and new and Joshua. Joshua had access full unfettered access to God, not because of who he was or what he did, but because of God's great, amazing, merciful love. You know, one of the reasons that people are reticent to join with God in his work in this world, I think, is that they see themselves through the lying eyes of the accuser who will always want to remind you of your sin and your unworthiness, your past and your shame. And It must have been hard for the people coming back from Babylon who no doubt maybe had capitulated all kinds of things along the way in those 70 years in captivity. It must have been hard for them to come back feeling like they were these these upstanding people of God. God wanted to remind them that he didn't choose them because they were upstanding. He chose them and he was going to give them new clothes, remind them of their forgiveness and the new start. It's likely some of them lost the intensity of their zeal for God, that they'd walked away from him, maybe for a long time. Maybe they let go of of their faith altogether. Could have been that they slipped into all kinds of patterns of the culture they were steeped in, giving up, giving in, giving over, doing it all, becoming indifferent. But hear the words of Yahweh who commands Satan silent and bids his angels to take the filthy robes off and to replace them with fresh, clean garments. It's not just a vision for God's mission in the world. It's a picture of God's heart for every single person. And that is his heart for you. As we close, I wonder where you're at this morning. Maybe you are finding yourself in need of some encouragement today. Maybe you're finding yourself feeling a bit faithless. Maybe you're experiencing a season of real indifference, indifference to God, indifference to the world, even indifferent to your own circumstances. Maybe you're struggling to believe that there is hope for your future. Maybe you think that the challenges that lie ahead can never be overcome. Maybe you don't think that you're fit for the work that God calls you to. You've been unwilling to sign up for for any kind of missional kind of work because you just say, who am I? Well, I just want to remind you that there is work to be done. There is a mission of God to be fulfilled in this world. And God is calling you to be a part of it. And he's not doing that unwillingly so or reservedly so. He's doing that wholeheartedly so because he loves you and because he has made you new. So as we close, I want you to remember this. Don't be dismayed by the size of the task. Don't be discouraged by the sin of your past. Don't give up, don't give over, don't give in, and don't let indifference keep you from making a difference. Don't be dismayed by the size of the task. Don't be discouraged by the sin of your past. Don't give up. Don't give over. Don't give in. And don't let indifference keep you from making a difference. 
Faith, you see, is believing that God can and will accomplish his good purposes. Yes, in and then through you. Be encouraged. Each week in the series, we've been ending each message by offering a simple prayer of confession and lament and repentance. So across all of our campuses uh, and venues, will you join me now in praying this prayer together as we close? Heavenly Father, forgive us when our faith is too small. We confess that we doubt in your power to make right in this world all that has gone wrong. We acknowledge our part in the trouble. When our faith is small, we give in to despair and indifference. We fail to see ourselves as you see us. We turn to our own small-minded thinking and small-hearted living. Forgive us for our lack of trust and absence of courage. Grant us your vision. Increase our faith. Make us strong for you and for the good you want to do through us. In the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for these moments this morning to be reminded and strengthened and heartened by the words of Zechariah, your words through Zechariah to the people of Israel and to us. God, we know that there are so many things in this world that get us down. There are so many places in our lives that, that we can look to and find ourselves discouraged, immobilized, without faith, and indifferent. But God, we thank you that you start with us afresh over and over again, reminding us that you've chosen us, that you've cleansed us, that you've made us whole, that you set us new and free, and that you set us about the work of the kingdom in this world. God, may we rise to the vision that you have for us. May we be a part of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen.